morning. I am Pastor David, the Community Life Pastor here at Maranatha, and I am delighted to see how many of you have chosen to worship with us this Christmas morning, and I'm confident we have even more on our live stream, so thank you for being here. Uh, as we get started, can I be honest with you? Actually, I've told a number of you this already, but it hasn't really felt like Christmas to me this year. And yes, all of the questions, we have our tree up, decorations are up, we even have little cute Christmas bells that play music, we've bought gifts, we've wrapped them, we had just lots of Christmas music playing, we had just a wonderful Christmas concert, a time of worship last Sunday night, hopefully you were a part of that, if not, I'd encourage you to watch it on YouTube, it was deeply moving. Yet, in, in spite of all of that, even with snow, it doesn't feel quite like Christmas to me this year. And we could spend a lot of time talking about all of the potential uh, reasons for my Christmas condition, but I'd rather spend our time talking about the cure. And the truth is, what I need and, and what I've been praying for, for myself and for you, is that I would experience, that I would enjoy the power and the presence of Christ today. And as we, uh, the three of us pastors, are going to take some time this morning and look at one section of the Christmas story that I hope in it you will find the, the biblical prescription for helping us all experience the power and presence of Christ both today and every day. But before we jump into that, would you join me in a brief word of prayer? Let's pray. Father, we gather this morning as your people, and as we come to your word, we confess that we need you. We need your spirit to take the truth of your word and not merely bring it to our ears, but implant it in our hearts. Father, our desire is to walk in intimacy with Christ, that as we celebrate this Christmas day, that it would just be a, a day that is a reminder of what we long for every day, and that is to be near to you. Father, we ask that you would guide and direct us as we proclaim your word this morning. And Father, I pray for all of the people here, all of the people that hear your word, that you would use it to draw them near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, I have the privilege of pointing out three things that we observe in the life of Joseph. And honestly, we could look at any of the people involved in the Christmas story. It could be Zachariah and Elizabeth. It could be Mary herself. It could be the shepherds, or it could be Anna and Simeon, even the wise men. And if we looked carefully, we would see these same three things as being true in their lives in some way or another. But there's something about Joseph in the way that he so clearly embodies these three truths that I know has been impactful for me and I hope will be impactful for you this morning. So if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And if you're using one of the, the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 807, 807. And you can follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, 
and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The first thing that I'd like for you to notice is that Joseph is devoted to God's word. Joseph is devoted to God's word. Notice in verse 19 where it says, and her husband Joseph being a just man, a just man. Matthew, who's the author of this particular book, takes great uh, particularity in using that word. It's often translated righteous, and Matthew uses it 17 times, more than any other New Testament writer. He uses it for a lot of reasons. We see him use it to describe those who are good and not evil. We see him use it to describe those who will shine like the sun in God's kingdom. And interestingly enough, we see him use it to describe what the Pharisees want people to think they are by outward appearance. So when Matthew writes that Joseph was a just man, he's very clearly trying to communicate that he has this devotion to God's law. There's, there's a, a sense about that word that communicates this devoutness of spirit, this commitment to obedience of God's word. And so what we see in Joseph being a just man is that he believes God's word is requiring him to divorce Mary. Now, that might seem strange to you. That might almost seem like a contradictory statement. He's devoted to God's word, and yet he's considering divorcing his wife. But let me remind you, Joseph didn't have the same access to God's word that we do. He couldn't just open his Bible and read it for himself whenever he wanted. He didn't have the Bible app. The, the awareness he had of God, God's word came from a lifetime of attending synagogue, listening to teaching, reciting and memorizing portions of scripture, listening to the rabbis teach. And interestingly enough, here's a, here's a quote from the Mishnah, which is the first, the oldest written record of rabbinical teaching. And you'll notice in this that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi says, when he's talking about Numbers chapter 5, notice he says, the two times that the defilement of the wife is stated in the passage, namely, and he warns his wife and she is defiled in Numbers 5.14, and the latter verse, where a wife being under her husband goes astray and is defiled in Numbers 5.29, indicate that her defilement results in two prohibitions. One is that she is forbidden to her husband, and one is she's forbidden to her paramour. So it's not hard to imagine that for Joseph, he felt in order to be obedient to God's word, he had no choice but to div divorce Mary. And so we see, even in that thought process, his devotion. But notice something more. Notice that in verse 20, when the angel comes to him, the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. You see, Joseph's devotion to God's word runs so deeply 
that he can't even imagine disobeying God's word. He's, he's apprehensive. He's fearful to do something that is against God's word or not do something God's word calls him to do. But we notice then that as the angel comes to him and, and reveals the truth to him, that as soon as Joseph hears God's word, he obeys. Notice verse 24 again. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Matthew is very clearly communicating to us Joseph's devotion to God's word. But it doesn't end there. He wants to make absolutely sure we catch this. And you notice two, actually three other places in the Christmas story. Right in Matthew 2, 13 through 15. After the wise men have left, an angel comes to him in a dream again. And you remember, he says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And notice verse 14 says, And he rose, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. God speaks, Joseph obeys. And again, when they're actually in Egypt... And God is calling them back to Israel in Matthew 2, 19 through 23. Again, an angel appears in a dream saying, Rise, take the child and his mother. Go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. In verse 21, it says he rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. And then again, he finds out that Herod's son is reigning in his place and is a little apprehensive. Again, an angel comes to him in a dream and warns him, and it says that he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in the city called Nazareth. So we see in Joseph this amazing, admirable, consistent devotion to God's word, a commitment to obey God's word. And I, if you're like me, you might have thought to yourself, well, if an angel showed up to me in a dream and told me what God wanted, I would do that too right? I mean, that, that's true. But don't forget what Pastor Andrew was saying to us last week from Luke chapter 2, as he was pointing out just the ways that Joseph was faithful in all of life. Notice he talked about that he had Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, that he presented Jesus at the temple, offering the appropriate sacrifices. Luke actually says, performing everything according to the law of the Lord. And even a little lower down, we see Joseph faithfully taking his family to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So Matthew is extremely clear in communicating Joseph's devoted to God's word. But that's not all. The second thing we need to notice is that not only is Joseph devoted to God's word, but he's driven by love for God. He's driven by love for God. And we see Joseph's love for God by the way he immediately is willing to obey God's word without concern for his personal costs. Okay, think about those same instances again. When God tells Joseph to take Mary as his wife, he obeys, even though it means taking all of the shame that was being piled on Mary onto himself. Right? Consider, before that happens, everyone around town is talking about Mary. Can you believe what Mary did? I mean, what about poor Joseph? How could she do? I thought she was such a nice young lady, right? But as soon as Joseph obeys and takes her as his wife, the focus is no longer on Mary. Can you believe what Joseph did? I mean, we thought Mary was bad, but you know what? He's not even divorcing her. You know, maybe he's the reason, 
right? And instantly, all of that shame is piled on him. But Joseph doesn't think twice about that. He's not concerned about giving up his dignity, his reputation, his good name. His love for God drives him to obey immediately. Also, think about it when God comes again and tells Joseph to take his family to Egypt, right? There's no concern that we see for his own comfort or convenience. God's calling him to move his family to another country. That's a lot of work, guys, okay? But not just any country, right? But to the land of slavery, to Egypt, and he's going to have to find a new home and a new job. They're going to have to give up the opportunity to be around friends and family. He's going to have to learn a new language. And on top of that, he's giving up the opportunity to go to synagogue every week, to go up to the temple for worship, for sacrifices, for the festival. But again, we don't see any hesitation in Joseph. Right? He's willing to give up his own comfort, his own convenience, his own convictions in order to obey God because of his love for God and desire to see God glorified. And then again, when the angel comes to tell him to go back to Israel, I mean, can you, I don't know if you guys can imagine, but I'm thinking they just have gotten settled, right? Un unpack the last box and he has a dream. And the angel says, look, it's time, go back to Israel. And again, Joseph is willing to embrace that. He loads up his family, goes and finds a new home, goes to find a new job, starts everything over. He has to go back to the place where people are still probably talking about him and Mary, right? But in addition to that, there's this threat potentially on their lives. But immediately, because of his love for God, he obeys without any concern for his own personal cost. And that's what we see in Joseph. We see his immediate obedience without grumbling or complaining, with a willingness to sacrifice whatever is needed for God's glory. And it clearly displays the underlying motivation of his heart. And that's love for God and for God to be glorified. And then one last thing. It's kind of the fruit of the first two. Joseph enjoyed the power and the presence of Christ. He experiences it in a way really few people have. Okay, we could talk about just the dreams, right? He's having these angelic count encounters where God is speaking to him in his dreams, but then he's there for the birth of the Son of God as God steps into our world, takes on our flesh. And then he's there to hear the testimonies, right? The testimonies as the shepherds come in. The testimonies as they go up to the temple from Anna and Simeon. Even as the wise men come and find them, he hears these amazing testimonies of what God is doing. And I, I would imagine all of those things in and of themselves are, are absolutely unbelievable. But yet, how much it must have paled in comparison to holding the Son of God in your arms. To, to look into his eyes, to be a part of his life, living daily with God in the flesh, being a part of seeing Jesus grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men, to literally see him every day, every step of development, being able to experience and enjoy the presence of Christ. You may get three Merry Christmases this morning. So this is uh, Merry Christmas. We're really glad to have you guys here this morning as well. And um, for those of you I haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Ben Kruger, and I am the Family Ministries Pastor here at Maranatha. Um, my wife, Ashley, and I have been married for 13 years, and we have four kids, Zeke, Titus, 
Naomi and Judah, who's over there. Um, and we're, we're really thankful to get to serve here um, at Maranatha. And today is a special opportunity, as all three of us pastors have gotten to come together to study the Word. And so I want to encourage you to grab your Bible again. We're going to jump back to Matthew, and we're going to look at the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 2. So turn with me there. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 807 to 808 of the New Testament part of your Bible. So as you're turning there, uh, also, I hope you're enjoying Christmas on Sunday. I googled, and if Google served me correct, this is the, uh, it will be 11 more years until we get to celebrate Christmas on Sunday. So hopefully you can enjoy this special opportunity, and don't think too hard about where we'll be 11 years from now, how old you might be. Um, So let's read Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Here's what the text says. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When, king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So as we look at this text, um, I want to take a look, first of all, at the setting, and then a few of the characters that we see within this passage, and then thinking about how this relates to us today. The first thing is thinking about the fact, verse 1 tells us that some time had passed. Likely now, chapter 2 has jumped forward a couple of years after Jesus' birth. And we have now moved five to six miles north of Bethlehem to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, and this would have been the seat of political and military power in the region. If you remember, King David was the one who had first made Jerusalem the capital of Israel. And so when you're thinking about significant political things happening, Jerusalem would be the place in Israel where those things would take place. God often referred to Jerusalem as the city of Zion, and it was a picture of his chosen people. But in the first century where we are today, uh, Israel was under Roman rule. And so there was much oppression here and much anticipation for the day when the true king would rule from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was also the center of worship. King Herod had rebuilt the temple, and this was the place where Jews would gather to um, take place and celebrate the feasts annually and to offer sacrifice. And so not only was Jerusalem of politics and uh, military power, it was also the center of worship within Israel. And so if anything significant was going to happen in Jerusalem, whether politically or spiritually, you would think Jerusalem would be the obvious place where this would originate from. So let's look at some of the people we see here within this text. The first one I want to look at are these wise men, or maybe your translation may say the magi. This is the 
really based in the Greek word uh, where we derive our word magic. So likely, these men would have been from Babylon or Persia. And as you think back to the story of Daniel, these were the other wise men that Daniel probably would have trained with. And as we think about this, uh, these men would have had a long journey to make. There would have been a lot of preparations to be had before they could make a journey from Babylon to Persia, which would also account for the amount of time that we see happening um, between Jesus' birth and their arrival here in Jerusalem. Um, these men were those who were seeking spiritual understanding. Likely, they were monotheistic, so they believed that there was just one God. And if you remember, after the deportation of Israel to Babylon, there were a lot of Jews who would have been left there. And likely this remnant would have talked about Yahweh, would have talked about the true God of Israel. And so maybe these men had heard stories of anticipation of a Messiah, of a ruler who would someday come and right all the wrong and all the problems that there were in the world. And so these men, when they saw the star, came and journeyed to Jerusalem. Likely, uh, you know, oftentimes we think of our little nativity sets where we have three kings maybe in there. Um, we don't know the number that were there. The text simply doesn't tell us. But it's likely that this was a large group of guys that would have traveled with servants and soldiers. And so when they arrived in Jerusalem, they would have made quite a commotion. Um, and as we can see here, not only did their presence shake things up in Jerusalem, if you look in verse 2 there, you see this idea. It begins with the word, uh, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying. In the original Greek, this word saying is present participle. That means they were continually asking. So you get the sense that from the moment they stepped foot in Jerusalem, they were asking everybody, hey, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? And imagine their surprise when no one seemed to know what they were talking about. Um, when the place that you would most expect people to be ready to anticipate the spiritual renewal of Israel and nobody seemed to have a clue. Well, finally, we now see that these, uh, these wise men come to King Herod. Now, Herod uh, was crowned king of the Jews by Octavian and Antony. These were Roman rulers, and so this was his title. Imagine how he felt when he heard someone looking for the king of the Jews. He was not Jewish. Herod was an Edomite, but he had married a Jew, and so his wife was Jewish to help win political favor with the people of Israel. Uh, he was a very cunning and wise leader. He helped Israel navigate through a really intense famine. And actually, Jared, or, sorry, Jared, um, Herod helped to rebuild the temple. Um, and so he was a well-known, a cunning warrior, diplomat, and politician. But what we also see from this text is that Herod um, was extremely paranoid. And he was afraid of anyone who threatened his power. And his response to Jesus is obvious. He was immediately opposed to anyone that would try to threaten his sense of power and control. He was anxious when these foreigners came searching for a new king, and he didn't like feeling uninformed about what was happening. And so certainly we see this threat of a new king arises as the wise men come. So the third characters we see here in the story are kind of, uh, I'm going to sort of group together as the religious leaders, okay? And they're really divided here in the text as the chief priests are the first ones that were listed here. Now, if you remember from the Old Testament, there was only supposed to be one chief priest that was appointed to serve for life in the role of going in annually to the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of Israel. But by the first century, this role had become very politically polluted. And so oftentimes the chief priest or the high priest 
was one who was chosen and appointed by uh, someone more in power. And so it was not unusual to see this person uh, often be rotating through a, a new person based on whether it was bribes or whoever was the political favorite. And so there became a, a group of men who were former priests or former high priests and became known as a part of the chief, excuse me, of the chief priests. So this role became more political than it was spiritual. Similar to the wise men, these chief priests had power and influence among the people. Uh, another, ch another priest that would have been grouped in here under the chief priest was the captain of the temple. Think temple police, okay? This was, guy was the, the chief of the temple police, and so he would have actually had a band of soldiers that he would have been responsible for that would have been primarily Jewish with which he could even lock people up. Uh, so a lot of authority within the Roman rule system. Now, most of the chief priests were Sadducees, and what we understand throughout the New Testament is the Sadducees and the Pharisees did not get along, okay? These guys were generally opposed to each other. Uh, and the Sadducees tended to have a more liberal interpretation, maybe we'd even say hermeneutic, when it came to understanding and applying the Old Testament. So then that moves us to the second group here that we see listed as the scribes. These men were primarily uh, Pharisees, so the party of the Pharisees, and again, a lot of opposition uh, to the Sadducees. They were the authorities on Jewish law and traditions and were often referred to as lawyers in the New Testament. They knew the law inside and out. In fact, they were the ones who were teaching the law to others, often in the temples and in the synagogues. Um, they would have had access to the Old Testament scripture. And so these scribes not only knew the law, but had the opportunity to study it day and night as much as they were able to, um, to really be saturated in the word. Theologically, they were very conservative and had a very literal hermeneutic. They, they interpreted scripture very literally, which led to a high level of legalism among the Pharisees. And so you see here that these leaders were called together by Herod. And as we take a look, we'll see one thing that was true, even though there was some theological diversity, these religious leaders were devoted to God's word. You see, both groups had founded all that they did based on God's word. The priests, their whole sacrificial system was anchored in Old Testament law. Their identity was based on what God's word told them and how they should live. We also see that the scribes were about teaching the law. That was what they spent their time doing, was teaching others the law. However, these men who had oriented their lives and their devotion around God's word didn't have any expectation that the Messiah would be coming soon. That was something they assumed was far off, but not something that they were looking for imminently in the present. And so we see that uh, they pursued today's comfort and assumed that the Messiah would be sometime in the future. These men also had, all these religious people had the right answers. And we can see that because when Herod asked them, where would the king of the Jews be born? They agreed in Bethlehem, right? Here, here's our proof text. We can show you what the Bible says in the Old Testament. And they showed the correct answer. And so we understand that orthodox profession isn't enough. These guys knew the right answers. We're reminded in James chapter 2, we're told that James says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So just believing the right things isn't enough. Or as we saw here, just devotion to God's word isn't enough. What we see, though, is underlying this, the religious leaders were driven by love for self. Ultimately, they saw God's word as something that served them, not something that helped them to serve God. 
they had their own selfish purposes, and they were not willing to submit to God's word and allow it to shape their hearts, their affections, and their values. In teaching, they missed the whole point of God's word. They turned it into a stagnant system of rules that brought death instead of words that brought life. They missed Scripture's revelation of God himself. Instead of seeking how to know God, they sought how to earn merit in his favor by trying to adhere to all the legalistic rules of the law. Their relationship with God was built on what they did for God more than on what God had done for them. Their identity was not in Christ. It was in their own works. God shook things up when the wise men came to Jerusalem. Foreigners came with reports of being called by God through this star. But it seemed that nobody in Jerusalem had noticed. Nobody within these religious groups who had God's word recognized what these foreigners saw. When Herod was disturbed, we see that all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. But the reason all Jerusalem was disturbed was not because the Messiah had come, but was because Herod was disturbed. And if you look through the pages of history, you'll find Herod being disturbed meant people died. Bad things happened. Cities got destroyed. And so the religious leaders were very concerned about which of them could potentially get the axe, as it were. And we see that their focus was not on being willing to pay the price of obedience. They loved their own safety more than they loved God. Right knowledge didn't lead to right action. They were indifferent about the reports of the Messiah coming. And as we see through this text here, none of them joined the wise men in going to Bethlehem. And as a result of their apathy and indifference, the religious leaders missed out on the power and the presence of Christ. They didn't seek the king of the Jews. They stayed in Jerusalem, content with their mediocre way of life, content with not finding out what this star meant or pursuing to see what God was doing in Bethlehem. We see the contrast here of what they missed out on by looking to the wise men. Look with me at verse 9. And you see there, as the wise men came to Jerusalem, they came to the place, uh, excuse me, in verse 9, um, behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. The wise men had this, this wonderful uh, moment of experiencing God's providence and leading. He had brought them from the east all the way to Jerusalem, to the king, to the religious leaders who had told them Bethlehem's the place to go. And then as they got closer, the text tells us that the star itself pointed them to where the Messiah was. And so they got to experience God's providential care each step of the way. We also see there in verse 10 that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's as though Matthew was running out of words to describe how excited they were about getting to see the Messiah, getting to see Jesus. There was great joy. They couldn't contain it. God's promise, God's hope, purpose for life all wrapped up. Their whole pursuit, and they were filled with this super abounding joy, getting to see the King of all kings. And it led them ultimately to worship. Because Jesus is worthy, his presence filled them with such a great joy. They got to see the veiled glory of God, and it brought such satisfaction instead of that which the leaders faced in missing out on the presence of God. Well, Merry Christmas. <laughs> well, we've had a chance to look at the Word of God and to see how devotion to the Word of God either leads to the experience of the presence of God in your life, we're totally missing the power and presence of God completely. 
So now we turn the, the microscope, as it were, onto your own life, give you an opportunity to evaluate your own heart, to take an inventory. Here we are on Christmas morning, and each of us in this room have been welcomed to the table, as it were, or welcomed to the manger, as it were, to experience that power in that presence of Christ, made available through Jesus Christ himself, the word of God made flesh who dwelt among us. So let's begin that process and begin to ask ourselves these questions and to begin to fill in the blanks for yourself because I can't do that for you. Your wife or your friend can't do that for you. You know your heart. You must do it for yourself. Are you experiencing, will you experience the power in presence of God? So this first phrase, this first line, how, how would you answer this? I am or I am not devoted to God's word. I am or I am not devoted to God's word. How would you answer that? For any of you who've been at Maranatha for any length of time, there, there's no need for me to try to convince you of the significance of the word of God. You know very clearly that the authority of the word of God and devotion to the word of God is preeminent for anyone who would desire to live a life that is pleasing to God. The psalmist says, Blessed is the man whose heart is delighting in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does will prosper. Jesus will tell his disciples much the same thing in John chapter 15 when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me, in my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Of course, we know the, the statement that, G, that Paul will make to the early church in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. The man of God might be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every, every, every good work. Every work that God has called you to do is possible through the power of God's word and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. For a life who is drawn in faith to Jesus Christ and has embraced him as your Lord and Savior. Everything good in the Christian life comes through a commitment to the word of God. Are you devoted to the word? Like Mary, like Joseph, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, like Simeon and Anna, are you devoted to the Word? Because without devotion to the Word, you will miss Christ this Christmas. And by the way, you will miss Christ completely. But as we saw from the scribes and the chief priests, a mere commitment to the Word is not enough. It's not just about being a master of content and information. Not simply about how much time you study the Bible. 
how much time you read the Bible, how many times you've read through the entirety of Scripture, how many verses you've memorized. It's not about commitment to the Bible itself. It's about commitment to God through His Word. You see, the scribes and the chief priests, they distinguished themselves in learning. They were the elite scholars in Israel. They were familiar with every nuance. They had worked through the theological minutiae. They had risen through the ranks of leadership. They had established themselves as the religious authorities. They had shown through a devotion to a word and to doctrine that, that they could rise to the top. But their devotion to the word did not change them, and that was the point. And because it didn't change them, it was useless. And I might even say, because they were not changed by the word, they were damned by the word. They were condemned and judged by the word. As Peter will say in his warning in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says, For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Their devotion to the word did not translate into devotion to God. Unlike Joseph, whose devotion to the word showed itself in obedience that was consistent, it was faithful, it was deliberate, it was immediate, a love for God driven by love for his word. And his devotion to the word flowed from a heart that was driven by love for God. And that's our, our next point. How would you fill in this phrase as you evaluate your own heart? Do you have a life that is driven for love for God or love for self? How can you tell? How, how do I know? What, what, are, what are some ways that I can discern whether or not my, my heart is, is drawn to the word of God for the right reasons? How, how do I know? I need to take this personal inventory. And through the, the next series of questions that you have there in your, your sermon outline, can you detect the inner Pharisee? Can you detect in your heart the inner scribe and, and chief priest whose, whose devotion to the word only goes so far? How do you feel when your efforts go unnoticed and unappreciated? <laughs> That's a hard one, right? Do you act differently depending upon the group that you're with? Do you struggle with private sin that no one knows about because you're not ever going to tell anybody that you struggle with sin? How do you feel when someone else gets credit for something you did? Are you easily embarrassed or easily offended? Are you afraid to admit your mistakes? Do you find yourself covering your tracks? Are you critical of others? Do you get angry when others don't work as hard as you? How do you handle criticism? How do you feel when people talk behind your back? Do you feel depressed or annoyed when people don't respond to your posts online or your texts or your emails? Do you get angry when people don't follow your advice? Are you discouraged when you're not included? Are you harboring bitterness or unforgiveness? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that people who are in love with God never struggle with these kinds of things. But, but what I'm saying is those who are in love with God are not driven by these things. They're not captive by these things. They're not enslaved or bound by these things. You see, those who, who, whose love and affection is oriented towards God, they don't have to worry about putting their works before men. 
As Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Those who love God don't have to worry about pleasing men, as Paul will say in Galatians chapter 1.10. He says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I cannot be a bondservant of Christ. You can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. A servant of God or a servant of others. And you don't have to depend on on people to reward you, as Jesus will say, again in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, he says, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. <laughs> That's interesting. And you don't have to be ashamed. When, speak, when people speak evil of your godly life, And by the way, they will speak evil of your godly life. It's inevitable. How will you respond? Peter will say in 1 Peter 3, verses 14 and 16, he says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear having a good conscience that when they defame you, and they will defame you as an evildoer, those who revile your good conduct in Christ will be ashamed. You don't have to be ashamed. Those who believe in him, he says this in chapter 2, those who believe in him will never be put to shame because Christ wins, and your identity is locked in and bound up in him. There's no need for shame. You don't have to be driven by the opinion of others. You don't have to protect your reputation. You don't have to elevate yourself over others. Let your love for God carry you. Let your love for God stabilize you, anchor you, satisfy you, comfort you. Fill your life with hope and joy. Let it tenderize your responses to others. Let it guide your decisions. Let it mobilize your service. Let your life be driven by love for God. And the final question, are you experiencing or not experiencing the power and presence of God? You see, God wants you to enjoy his power and presence. He sent his son Jesus to the earth as the word of God made flesh so that you can enjoy the presence and power of God. Are you experiencing the power and presence of God today? The apostle Paul was concerned about the early church because they were missing it. They, they were missing it. And, and, and there are so many verses that, that speak in the New Testament of, of Paul praying for the church to experience the, the offering of the grace of God through the power and presence of God. And he's praying that it will happen over and over again. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it says this, Therefore I also... After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Why? That you might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
He goes on and he continues his prayer in chapter 3 where he says this, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to notice this same theme. This church that had been missing the power and presence of God, he's praying, experience it. I'm praying that, 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 that Jesus, that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And a few verses later in verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us, those who believe. In chapter 6, verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. There is power available for those who believe in Jesus. Are you experiencing the power and presence of God? And we could keep going on. We could go to Philippians, in Colossians, in Thessalonians, in Timothy, in 1 Peter, in 2 Peter, and we can see that the power and presence of God is available for those who believe. Paul thinks the church is failing to tap into the power. And I believe for many of us in this room, we're missing it too. We're missing all that God would have to give to us through his presence. But, but what does it look like? How can I tell how do I experience the power and presence of God? And, and what does it look like in my life? How do I know that it's there? Here are some ways to, to tell. Do you see that you're having power to overcome sin in your life? Are you noticing that there is progress in the Christian faith? Do you see that there's courage to live for Christ and to speak for Christ? Is your witness clear and bold and courageous wherever you are? Is there a satisfaction in Christ? I love Paul's words where he says, I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content. Is there a clear sense of direction? Like, like Solomon will say, the, the wise Solomon, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Is there freedom from anxiety where, where, where God says, be anxious for nothing? Is there a consistent heart of gratitude where, where Paul will commend the church, rejoice in the Lord always. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Are we growing in spiritual fruit, love for the saints, burden for the lost, a hunger for the word like newborn babes? Are you craving the pure milk of the word that you might grow thereby? Is there a passion for service? Is there a pattern of generosity? You see that the power and presence of God will change you. It's not that you'll do these things perfectly, but you'll notice that as your life continues to move along the path, that God is, is leading you to, to deeper sense of enjoying these things that he's made available to us. Much like what Paul will tell Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 15 and 16, he says, meditate on these things Give yourself entirely to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself, to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear. If we will ever experience the power of God in our life, we will only experience it through the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the Son of God. Don't be like the scribes and chief priests who had all the right answers and missed Jesus. 
not only at his birth, but they missed him through the duration of his entire ministry. Jesus is standing in front of their face. Very God, a very God is standing in front of them. They miss him completely because they were devoted to information and doctrine and not to worship. Don't be like Herod or the crowds in Jerusalem who heard the question. They're troubled by the reality of the Messiah's presence, but they don't seek the Savior and they don't go to worship. Be like Joseph, who in his relationship with God, in his faithful, consistent obedience, presses in to know God more and embrace obedience and devotion and worship to God. Take deliberate steps beginning today to make the Word of God a substantial part of your daily life, driven by love for God, not love for self so that you can experience the power and presence of God this Christmas and this coming year. What might God do in your family if you're like that tree that's planted by rivers of water? What might God do for your community, for your friends, for your coworkers, for your fellow classmates, for this church? What might God do if the power and presence of God was fully activated and that God was faithful to allow us to experience the fruitfulness of a life that is committed to him. Oh God, that's what we want. We want a life that is so evidently filled with your presence, abiding in you, that it's clear that it's not us that's accomplishing the ministry around us, but it's clear to others and it's clear to us that everything that happens in our life is a result of a commitment to truth and a commitment to Christ. May the power and presence of God be known through us to our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.